One year when I was in middle school, our church's youth group went to Panama City for spring break. That might sound like fun, but we didn't actually go to the beach for more than a few minutes. Instead of sticking our toes in the sand or playing in the waves, we spent our time at a renewal conference with other youth groups, listening to overly enthusiastic preachers, amazingly confident small group leaders, and a really loud Christian rock band that no one seemed to like. I don't remember many of the details about that conference, but two things stick with me all these years later. First, I remember feeling pressured to give my life to Christ publicly because I was made to believe that my private devotions were not sufficient. And secondly, I remember being asked to use the Bible to solve this nation's welfare crisis. What fun. At the conference, the youth groups were all split up into small groups, and we learned things throughout the week. And I remember one day in our small group, the leader split us up into pairs and gave each pair a Bible and a slip of paper, each piece of paper having a different societal problem that we were supposed to offer a solution to based on biblical values. I don't remember what any of the other slips of paper had on them, but I do remember flipping frantically through the Bible, looking for any verses, any stories, any people that had anything to do with welfare. We were stumped. When it was our turn to share, my partner and I acknowledged that we hadn't found anything in the Bible. But knowing pretty well what sort of answer we were expected to give, we said with firm conviction, we believe that God helps those who help themselves. That's not in the Bible. The leader snapped back at us disappointedly. She mistakenly attributed our quotation to Shakespeare, who didn't actually write those words. But oh well. 2 Thessalonians 3.10 was all she said by way of correction, staring at us, implying that we were supposed to turn to that verse and read it aloud for everyone in the group to hear. For even when we were with you, we gave you this command, anyone unwilling to work should not eat. I didn't pay a lot of attention to politics back then, but looking back, and realizing that a certain former Arkansas governor was in the White House and that the welfare-to-work bill was being debated in Congress, it doesn't surprise me that the leaders were asking us to use the Bible to find a simple answer to that particular complicated problem. I don't know what the leaders would have done if instead we had cited Matthew 25, 5, for I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. Or Proverbs 25, 21, if your enemies are hungry, give them bread to eat. Or Isaiah 55, 6 and 7, is not this the fast that I choose? To share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house? I'm glad to know more about the Bible now than I did back then, but that doesn't solve the problem of what we are supposed to do with that troublesome verse that we heard in our reading from 2 Thessalonians. Those who are unwilling to work should not eat. Does Paul mean it? Are we supposed to believe it? Paul even gives this as a command. 
flexing his apostolic muscles to get his point across. But the Bible rarely offers simplistic, unequivocal answers to complicated issues. And it might not surprise you to learn that Paul probably wasn't trying to winnow down the welfare roles in Thessalonica. It turns out that laziness or idleness, as our translation puts it, wasn't really the issue at all. The phrase, which is translated at the beginning of our epistle reading today as living in idleness, is a phrase that more precisely means something like walking in a disordered way, as in a soldier who's marching out of step with the other soldiers. Now, Admittedly, translators have a hard time knowing what to do with that phrase because this is the only place in the Bible where the phrase occurs. Now, for a long time, English translations of the Bible left the words in their original idiom, letting the congregation figure out what it meant. So, for example, in the 14th century, the Wycliffe Bible used wandereth out of order. And 300 years later, the King James Version chose walketh disorderly. But by the middle of the 20th century, things had begun to shift. Translators seemed to want to provide more context, perhaps to be sure that overly literal interpreters didn't think that the problem in Thessalonica was Christians who couldn't walk in a straight line. So, for example, when the American Standard Version, which was originally published in 1901, was updated in 1971, the phrase went from walketh disorderly to leads a disorderly life. And you can see that the context is beginning to take shape, but other translations went even further in the name of contextualization, borrowing probably unfairly, from the surrounding text, changing disorderly walking to living in idleness, even though idleness doesn't really have anything to do with that particular phrase. And Christians have been confusing what Paul was trying to get across ever since. Now, it could be that the disorder or the misconduct that Paul had in mind was sheer laziness, But if you read the rest of the passage, and even better, if you read all of 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, you get a sense that that's not really what Paul had in mind. Because whatever Paul was trying to convey, he bases his argument on his own time with the Thessalonians. For you yourselves know, he wrote, how you ought to imitate us. We were not disorderly or idle when we were with you. And we did not eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor, we worked night and day so that we might not burden any of you. You'd be hard-pressed to call Paul lazy or idle, but you might say that he was so busy doing important things like preaching and teaching that he didn't have time to earn a living. You could even say that an apostle like Paul shouldn't have to pay for his own meals, but should be entitled to live off the generosity of others. But that's exactly the sort of disorderly example that Paul went out of his way not to set. He didn't want any of the other would-be apostles to take advantage of their 
presumed authority, so Paul made sure always to pay his own way. If you take time to read the rest of 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, you discover that the overarching problem that Paul was addressing wasn't lazy Christians who expected others to feed them, but pretend apostles who expected the Christian community to treat them like royalty, hanging on their every word and providing for their every need. But you'd never know that if the only verse you ever read was 2nd Thessalonians 3.10. Thankfully, we belong to a Christian tradition that takes the Bible more seriously than that. Blessed Lord, who caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning. We pray those words in the colic for today, acknowledging the God-given gift, not only of the scriptures we want to hear, but of all the scriptures. When Thomas Cranmer, the author of the first book of Common Prayer, wrote that collect, he was implicitly criticizing the dominant religious institution of the day for not only offering worship in a language that the people couldn't understand, but also for breaking up the reading of Scripture in church with so many minor feast days that most of the Bible went largely unread. Today, the dominant Christian culture isn't all that different, is it? Prioritizing translations that reinforce their opinions and proof-texting select verses to fit their arguments. But the Word of God will not be weaponized like that. If you want to know what the Episcopal Church believes about something, then the right place to look is not in some book of doctrine, but instead in a book of prayer, because it is how we pray as Episcopalians that shapes what we believe. And today's collect tells us what we believe about the Bible. We believe that God caused all holy scriptures to be written, not as a literal, factual record of history, but as a divinely inspired gift given for a very particular purpose, for our learning. We believe that God helps us do more than memorize the words on a page. We believe that God enables us to hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them until they become a part of who we are. We believe, as the right one version of the collect puts it, that it takes patience time and repeated encounters with God's word to receive the full benefit of the comfort that that word is supposed to provide us. And we believe that immersing ourselves in the richness of God's word will help us embrace and hold on to the ultimate hope that God has given us, which is the promise of everlasting life. In short, we believe that the whole Bible is God's gift to us and that when we study it deeply, it helps us maintain our hope in what God has promised us. But Cranmer's vision of a rich, scripture-fueled hope wasn't to be accomplished by coming to church one day a week and paying attention when the Sunday lessons are read. Cranmer imagined a church in which all people Clergy and laity were committed to reading the Bible every day. 
In the preface to the first book of Common Prayer, Cranmer wrote that by coming to church and hearing the scriptures every single day, the people should continually profit more and more in the knowledge of God and be the more inflamed with the love of God's true religion. Though it may sound more like something you'd hear in another denomination, there is nothing more Anglican or Episcopal than reading the Bible seven days a week. That's why we offer morning and evening prayer most days and why we encourage everyone to read the daily office on their own. Throughout Christian history, isolated verses of Scripture have been used to do terrible things like defend slavery perpetuate misogyny, dehumanize the poor, demonize people because of whom they love, excuse abusive behavior, and justify genocide. But the whole canon of Scripture tells a very different story, one of God's persistent love for the world, God's preference for the poor, God's vindication of the oppressed, and God's redemption of the lost. We are a part of that story And if we want to tell that story, which is good news for the world, we've got to take the Bible seriously. Seriously enough even to read the whole thing and to read it every single day until God's word takes hold of our hearts and our minds and shapes our lives into lives that are filled with hope. What good news that is for God's people and the world. Thanks be to God. Amen.